from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, chapters 26, verses 1 through 11. When you have entered the land of the, the land the Lord your God is giving you as the inheritance, and have taken possession of it and settled in it, take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land the Lord your God is giving you, and put them in the basket. Then go to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name, and say to the priest in office at the time, I declare today to the Lord your God that you, your God, that I have come to the land the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. The priest shall take the basket from your hands and set it down in front of the altar of the Lord your God. Then you shall declare before the Lord your God, my father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down into Egypt with a few people, and I lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to harsh labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, Lord, have given me. Place the basket before the Lord our, your God and bow down before him. Then you and the Levites and the foreigners residing among you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given to you and your household. The word of the Lord. From the book of Romans, chapter 10, verses 8 through 13. The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The word of the Lord. Let's stand for our gospel reading. From the gospel according to Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. 
When the devil had finished all this tempting, he led him until an opportune, he left him until an opportune time. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this morning. I'm really thankful um, to be in community with you um, on days of daylight savings time, on days of good and bad weather. I just love worshiping together and gathering together. Um, I want to say a particular thank you today to um, those who lead our music and our worship team. Tyler and Hannah coordinate that team and David and Jacob and Langley and then a bunch of other people that are involved in that. And so I just want to say thank you to you guys. You all are so faithful. Um, When I saw the three of you up here this morning, um, I was just, the word, the phrase came to me, the embodiment of faithfulness. (laughs) And I just thought about each of you and just the time and the energy that you put into this and your faithfulness week after week. Um, Also, many of you may not know this, but David um, Christopher works overnights. And so, Uh, Sunday mornings, most of the time, that involves him coming basically straight from work. And today it was daylight savings time, so he was at work an extra hour than normal and came here, and he's usually just trying to keep his eyes open, (laughs) and he does such a phenomenal job leading us, and so I'm really thankful for you all today. Yeah, yeah. Um, Well, I was wondering today if we should do something more informal and kind of sit on a, a stool and kind of chat, but... Um, I don't really know how to do that. So <laughs> I'm just gonna, is it okay if I just preach today? <laughs> I'm just gonna preach today. Um, but we are beginning this season of Lent and Lent is a, a desert season. We've been talking about this a little bit. It's a season of dependence. It's a season of trust. We are a people who have been, our story is that we've been delivered. We've been set free from oppression to sin and death, and now we are a wandering people. That's kind of the story of the children of Israel, that they're set free from Egypt, from oppression, um, and then they're set free only to go into the wilderness. They have an identity. They're the people who have been set free. They're God's children. They're those who have been delivered from Egypt, and yet now they face temptation. In the midst of temptation, there's always this thought of, maybe I'll just go back to what's known. Let me go back to what I'm comfortable with. Let me go back to those things that I worship and I give my life to before I was set free. I don't know how this manifests for you in your day-to-day life. I've been thinking a lot lately about like the Enneagram personality types and how each of us respond to faith kind of in different ways. And if you haven't studied that, it's totally fine. But each of us kind of respond differently to uh, temptation, I think, in our lives. It manifests differently in different ways. Um, So I don't know how it is for you, but for me, idolatry or worship of other things or counterfeits usually manifests itself as a lack of trust in a situation where um, it might be easier or feel easier to try to control a situation or to freak out about a situation that I can't control. It manifests itself in lack of trust. God has done, for me, I know, God has done so much for me and my family. He has brought us through so many things. He's provided for us. He's led us. He's made things clear when they've needed to be clear. And even if he hadn't, even if all we had was a story of misery and turmoil, there's the cross and the resurrection, and that's enough right? So look back on God's faithfulness and go, God is so good. He's been good to my family. He's been good to us. He's been good ultimately in the cross of the resurrection. And yet I don't know about you, still every time I'm faced with a circumstance that seems daunting, every single time when it's not obvious or not clear, 
I'm tempted to freak out a little bit or a lot a bit, right? <laughs> Maybe you are too. I know my identity. I know who I am in Christ. I know my calling. I know my source. And yet there's this constant temptation to think, this is the time where everything just falls apart. <laughs> this is the time where God doesn't come through. This is the time where I have to depend on myself, right? Have you ever thought that? Okay, good. At least three of us. That's good. Um, today's passage is about who God has called us to be and the ways that we're tempted to go astray. So we've talked about this before, but we were created uh, as worshipers, as you can, another way to say it is as lovers, as desirers. We were created to long for something, to desire something, to worship something, and of course that thing is God. Um, and yet every temptation is not just a temptation to do bad things. This is how I kind of understood it as a kid, is a temptation is to do things that are in the bad column instead of in the good column. But it's different than that. Temptation is a change in our allegiance, where we have our allegiance. It's, it's a temptation towards changing our allegiance. And that's the word I want us to hang on today is this idea of allegiance. N.T. Wright says, the real answer to temptation is not God will be cross if I do that or God will be angry if I do that, but that if I do that, I will miss the best that my father has for me, okay? So the point, temptation is not, I better not do that because God's gonna be angry at me. Temptation is I shouldn't do that because that's not the best thing my loving father has for me in my life, okay? In our Old Testament text, the children of Israel are receiving the law. So in Deuteronomy, we're right in the middle of this section, this long section about the minutia of the law. And if you've ever done like a Bible reading plan before where you start with Genesis and go all the way through, it's about Deuteronomy that you start going, oh my gosh, I'm about to pull my, my eyeballs out right, or my hair out or something, because there's all the minutia of the law. So they're talking about cleanliness, community laws, divorce, family laws, clothing issues, don't mix your fabrics, by the way, livestock laws, issues dealing with war and peace, courtroom situations, offerings in the temples, festivals, all these kind of things are going on in Deuteronomy and in this section of Deuteronomy. And here there's a command, once you enter the land, so there's gonna be a day where you enter God's promised land. And when you enter that land, you are to present the first fruits of the land that you produce to the Lord. Now, this was in common with the customs of the day when somebody worked on a land. They were supposed to give the best crops or the first crops to the person who owned that land that they worked on. So they were supposed to get kind of the first return of that. So it's a recognition, the children of Israel, that God owns all the land. He owns all of it. So we give him the first fruits. We give him the best part of the land. And they're to do this with a liturgy, if you notice that today in the text that Sarah read. It's a very specific liturgy. So he says, say this, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the land the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. So there's that part and we go, great. Okay, I've come today to present this offering. But then it continues. My father was a wandering Aramean and went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to harsh labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs of wonders. 
He brought us to the place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, Lord, have given me. So imagine that every time you come to present your first fruits, you say this whole thing, right? Say, I have come to present it, but then you're like, my ancestor was a wandering Aramean. You go through that every time. It's a recounting of your history. It's a recounting of who you are and your identity as God's people every single time you offer first fruits. Well, why do they do that? Well, because God knows the human heart. We are always tempted to think we are dependent on something else other than God. We're constantly tempted to do that. We're always tempted to forget what God has done for us. We're always tempted to forget our story. And when we forget our story, we no longer live in the best way that God has called us to live. And we're no longer a blessing in the world. So this liturgy basically says, this is where I come from. It starts with a wandering Aramean. Our people then were oppressed. We cried out to the Lord and he heard us and he brought us out and he gave us the land. Now notice this, they are given this command to do this whole liturgy while they are in the desert, before they have entered the land, okay? Before they've received their blessing, they're told that they're supposed to do this. Why? Because God knows that when they receive their blessing, it's gonna be easy for them to forget their source. Once they've received all that God has given them, it's gonna be tempting to think, I'm now dependent on me and not on God. This is not a sermon about offering today, but you may have seen the statistics um, that person, a person's income in statistically is directly inverse of the percentage that they give to charity or to the church or whatever. But basically, the more money that a person in the United States makes, the smaller percentage they give away. Isn't that interesting? That's just statistically kind of how that works. Now, of course, people who make more money often give more money, but it's the percentage that is, that is different. Why? Well, there are a lot of sociological factors at work, but I, I wonder if once we accumulate wealth in our lives, a little or a lot, we are more tempted to forget our source. Not everybody does that, but we are more tempted to forget our source. So how do we protect ourselves from that? Well, the children of Israel were to protect themselves from this by a liturgy of confession of who their God is and what he has brought them through, reminding us of our story and of self-giving. The other thing you'll notice here is that saying and doing go together. So they do something and they speak about it. Those two things are connected. Formation happens when we align our speech and our action and we point it all towards God. Okay. There's also a significant difference between how the pagan world understood time and the way Israel was taught to understand time. So if you've studied pagan cultures, like Israel is not unique in having harvest festivals and practices that they did. Every pagan culture in the ancient world had these kinds of things. So there's festivals and religious ceremonies when spring happens, when the crops are produced. There's festivals that happen in the winter when everything dies. I mean, this was just consistent all throughout the pagan world. Um, there were fertility metaphors. There were worship, a variety of gods were worshiped. And so the primary understanding in the ancient world of time was cyclical. The time goes in a circle. So there's spring and there's winter, there's harvest, there's dead time. There's all these things that kind of cycle back and forth. And the same thing happens over and over again. And we have festivals for all of that. 
Israel had these two, but theirs were also a little different. They were subversive. Rather than just being cyclical, Israel's festivals were rooted in God's historic action in the past. So it wasn't just these festivals happen every season and we do this. There was a sense of that. But it was also, there was a time when God acted in the past. This isn't just a cycle. This is God did something for us in the past. They looked backwards. God acted in a specific way. And then also, in addition to looking backwards, they also looked forwards. That what this means is there will be a day when everything will be restored. This made Israel unique. The pagan world didn't do that. They thought of everything in cycles. But Israel thought in terms of past and future. Time is not just cyclical, it's backwards and forwards looking. Why is this important? Well, we do this every time we receive communion together. We do this same thing. Historically, the offering in the church and communion were received together. Why? Well, communion comes from the earth, and what would happen is the winemakers in the community and the bread makers would bring their bread and bring their wine as part of the offering, and that's what was served to the community. Okay? So it came from the earth, it was these first fruits, and then God does something with it. He changes it in some way. At the Lord's table, we bring forth what has come from the earth. We acknowledge that it comes from him, and then we tell our story of God's action in the past. We recount what God has done for us, God's self-giving love, which has shaped our identity as a people, and then we look forward to the day when everything will be made right. I want to suggest that we need this week after week. We need this. It's not just an intellectual reminder. It's a formation. This is who I am. This is my story. This is where we're headed. This is where the world is going. And in the midst of that, God is present with us right now. And as we do that over and over again, God forms us and shapes us by dependence on him. So that's kind of our Old Testament text and what's happening here. Um, Paul's verse, I didn't want to preach on Paul's verse today, that, that, or Paul's verses that we read today. And there's a reason for that. Um, as we look at Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 10, verse 9, he says this, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that Christ raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's a great verse. It's a wonderful verse. And many of us know this word, these words, but I want to suggest that they've often been used um, hurtfully, often been used as like a litmus test for who the good guys are and the bad guys are, <laughs> who the in-group is and who the out-group is. We call these clobber verses, that people sometimes use verses like these to clobber other people. And that is not what Paul intended. I have a specific answer with, or specific reminiscence with this verse. Um, when I was a teenager, I remember, like I was 13, I think, that my friend and I went to a movie together. And this was the age where I was kind of starting to go places like movies and dinner and things like that with my friends without my parents, right? You kind of get to that age and you're starting to do that. And they still drive us and all that stuff, but you go and do that. And I remember one day we were leaving a movie, the movie theater and it was late at night and we walked out and it was dark outside. And I remember that being a unique feeling that I was walking out of a public place and it was dark outside. <laughs> it's just odd, it's just interesting. And... Um, and there were two guys that were a little bit older than us who were kind of in gothic kind of attire. They had long black trench coats and they started being really intimidating with us. So they started kind of 
pinning us over into a corner as we were walking out, which, yeah, it's real freaky, like really weird. Um, and they start, hey, 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 just kind of moving us, hey, hey, hey. And we're still in public, but it was still weird. It was like a circle kind of start pulling around us. And they say, hey, 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 we need to talk to you guys. We need to talk to you guys. Um, what are your names? So I say, Tom. And then my friend says, Frank. We're not going to give him our real names, right? So, well, Tom and Frank, we've got a question for you. We've got to ask you something, right? Very intimidating. And I said, if you were to die today, where would you go, heaven or hell, right? So, um, you know, so at first, like, we're, what are these guys doing? Like, we're freaking out. And then when they ask that question, I relax a little bit. <laughs> but I, I um, you know, my 13-year-old um, self, I said, heaven. They said, well, how do you know this? And gosh, I was a Bible Bowl quiz champion. I knew my Bible really well. I said, well, I confess with my mouth and believe in my heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. And they left us alone at that point, which was nice. No celebration or anything, just, okay, fine, moving on, right? Um, so I, I knew that made me part of the in-group. That made me part of one of the good guys. That made me free from fear, right? If I could prove that I had done this action, then I am part of the in-group and not the out-group. Um, that was good enough for them. And I think we often use this passage that way. Like, it's kind of a shaming people into heaven. Have you done this thing? You better, and that'll make you part of the in-group. But I, I want to suggest that was never intended to be the purpose of this passage. It's, Paul says, no one who believes in him will be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord over all and generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is good news. This is the good news that God has come close. That we've chased after so many other things in our lives and God by his grace and mercy has drawn near to us. And there is freedom from shame. This ought to be used as a verse of freedom proclamation. There is good news. Your God has come close. And if you choose to trust in him, there is freedom from shame. Every other God in our world leads down paths of either honor or shame. Every other God in our world. Think about it. If you have enough wealth, if wealth is your God, if you have enough wealth, you're honored. If you fail to, then you're shamed. If you're a certain kind of attractive in our culture, you're honored if you aren't, you're shamed. Jesus has come to free us from shame, this verse says. And if we cling to him, we have joined the story of the generous God who liberates us from shame. This is not, this verse is really about ethnicity, actually. This is not about ethnicity. This is not about bloodline. This is not about good works or where you come from. This passage says, when you join the family of God, you are released from shame. You are free. Freedom from false stories is our salvation. When we're able to lay down those temptations towards false stories and go after God, that is salvation. That's what that is. We're freed from dehumanizing stories which boil us down to consumers or voters or attractive objects. And we are freed from where those stories lead us, which is hollow and empty. Now, what does this phrase mean, believe in your heart? Um, as Western people, we often think belief is something that happens in your head, okay? So belief is an intellectual thing. It's something you assent to once you have all the appropriate information. 
So if I wanna believe in something, I go and I get all the facts, I get together, and then hopefully I'm convinced in such a way that I have belief. But in the ancient world, the heart was the core or the center of a person, the essence of a person. Not just their intellect, it was the core of them. It was what animates everything else. And the idea is that relationship with Jesus is holistic. It involves our head, our mouth, our heads, our hands, everything else. So confess with your mouth may have been what happened at baptism. That may be what Paul is talking about here. When we confess Jesus Christ as Lord, a a person when they were baptized would get in front of the congregation and still do today and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is so important because it shows that faith is not just individual and private, it's public. The belief is communal in a sense. It's participation in a community. It's not just something that happens in our closets when we get home, once we've gathered all the right information or had an emotional experience. Faith is personal. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a personal element to faith, but faith is also public and communal. And so this confession is about joining a bigger story, not just about me individually. And notice again that it's liturgical. We are a people who are formed by action and by proclamation together. So my prayer for us today is that we would know that we are part of, and you would know that you are part of a family, that your identity has changed. Even if you feel like your intellectual belief is in chaos, even if you feel like your life is in shambles right now, if you experience like uncertainty and fear in your life, the good news is God's word has come near and we have been brought into a family and we are free from shame. Then our last passage today, and all these tie together, um, Jesus in the wilderness. Uh, Jesus goes into the wilderness and it says that he's full of the Holy Spirit. This is important to remember that God never leaves Jesus alone, that Jesus is not by himself, that the Spirit is with him. The Trinity is at work even in the midst of the desert places, the chaos of the desert. In the midst of temptation, God is with Jesus. And Jesus is tempted when it comes to his allegiance. Will you follow the path that the Father has led you on, or will you choose a different path? It's important that the enemy's first words to Jesus are, if you really are the Son of God. If you really are the Son of God. So Jesus is tempted to prove that that thing that God said about him just a couple chapters before at his baptism Is that thing really true? Is he really God's beloved son? And if so, prove it. Maybe prove it to Satan, maybe prove it to the world, maybe just prove it to yourself. If we go back to Deuteronomy, Moses is giving the law to the children of Israel, God's children, God's family, calling them to remain faithful, to confess and to act in ways that are oriented towards their covenant with God. But we know the story, they fail over and over again. In fact, this first generation that Moses speaks to doesn't even enter the promised land because of their failure. But we see Jesus go through the desert. And what Luke is trying to show us is that where the children of Israel failed, where they faltered, Jesus was true, that he was faithful. 
that Jesus is the new and better Israel walking through temptation in the wilderness. And what does he use to resist this temptation? Well, he uses Moses's words in Deuteronomy. So he keeps pulling from Deuteronomy and quoting Deuteronomy. So he is this new Israel who is faithful and true in the wilderness. The first challenge appears simple. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days and he's hungry. Maybe you experienced a very small glimpse, those of you that are fasting something this week of this, where if you fasted chocolate and you had your first opportunity to encounter chocolate in the world that exists still, even when you fast it, right? And you go, oh, I want that thing, right? There's this temptation. Well, Jesus has been fasting for 40 days, no food. He's hungry and he has a real need. This temptation is not a bad need for Jesus. We're not to look at this and go, gosh, what a weakling, he was hungry. Should have been more spiritual than that. No, this is a real legitimate need and there's nothing wrong with food. Food is good. Bread is good. It comes from the earth. I'm, if, if you're gluten-free, I know bread is not good, but, and there's controversy about this right now. But bread will just, for today, bread is good, all right? Um, it's a gift from God. And, and you all know you need food, right? We all know that. We need food. You can't go for too terribly long without food and survive. And yet the challenge for God's people is to recognize it is God who gives us food in the first place. It is God who gives us bread. So you can say we are more dependent on God than we are on bread. We are dependent on food. We are dependent on bread. But God is the giver of bread. Bread comes from the earth. So there's a process of waiting for bread, okay? We forget that sometimes because for us, we don't have to wait very long for bread. If, if we run out of bread at the store, we just go to the, or we run out of bread at home, we go to the store and we get more bread. But if we think about the rhythms of creation, we wait for harvest. We wait for bread to come. When we pray for our meals, we are not doing that to, I used to think growing up that we're praying a blessing so that we don't get sick like we pray all the E. coli away from whatever we're about to eat or whatever. But no, that's, that's not what we're doing. We're saying, God, thank you for what you've given us. Thank you for providing bread again today. And in some sense, that reorients us. When we're rushing to the dinner table and we're trying to get all the dishes out of the way and we're kind of really stressed about what's going on at work and what home, then we settle ourselves and we go, God, thank you once again that we have food in front of us to eat that you've sustained our bodies by the giving of food. It's a beautiful thing. So what Satan says is he says, you're hungry now, don't wait. You don't have to wait, just shortcut it. Jesus, look inside yourself rather than trusting the sustaining of the Father. Take the shortcut. There is a temptation to turn our tangible skills, whether they're creativity, ingenuity, talent, wealth earning, and to turn to those things rather than trusting God as our source. I think this tends to manifest itself sometimes in anxiety and in feeling of scarcity. When anytime I say anxiety in this context, I'm not talking about um, the uh, condition of anxiety. I hope you guys know that. I'm, I'm talking about kind of a, um, a stress or a um, uh, turning to something else, right? Um, an existential anxiety, we can say that. Um, and, and a feeling of scarcity. Will I ever have enough? Will the world ever produce bread for me again? <laughs> right? I need to do it myself. Maybe I should binge on the food that I have now because you never know if I can afford to eat like this again. 
I'm just so tired and I've had a really rough day. I need to drink my cares away because that will give me peace. My sexual needs are not really being fulfilled. So let me find a person, an internet page or a magazine to meet my needs. It's important to remember why we turn to these things. It's not because we're just bad, shameful people, okay? It's because we need to be reminded of our identity, that we forget our source, that we need to be reminded of the Father who says that we are his children because of Christ. So what Jesus does is he responds to the tempter by quoting Deuteronomy, man shall not live on bread alone. The full quotation from Deuteronomy is, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is saying, bread itself is not what sustains me. God is who sustains me. And God is the one who gives me bread. Jesus says, I don't need to shortcut the process. I don't need to try to just use my skills to turn rocks into bread. I can trust the timing of God to give me what I need. So he's tempted in food. Then he's tempted in influence, okay? The devil gives him a second challenge. He takes him up to a high place and he says, I will give you all the authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Now, it's hard for us in some of these passages to go, well, I'm gonna put myself in that position because most of us have not been tempted towards devil worship in the pure sense. Maybe you have, I don't know you, maybe you do have. <laughs> I do know you actually, but, <laughs> um, but this sounds strange to us. And this picture of Jesus bowing before Satan, it just doesn't sit right. So sometimes we can read this and we go, of course he's not gonna like, bow down to Satan. Of course he's not gonna do this. But this temptation has more subtlety to it. It's a temptation to do something spectacular or to be something spectacular. Like bread, fame is not wrong in and of itself. In other words, not all famous people are bad, okay? <laughs> it's how we think of and how we hold on to fame that matters, right? You may be sitting here and saying, well, fame is the last thing I'm tempted with. I'm not famous. No one knows who I am. <laughs> but you may be tempted by the question, well, what am I really doing with my life? I'm not doing anything spectacular. I'm not doing anything huge for God or for the world. I'm not impressive to my friends and my family. But is that our driver? That's a common human temptation. We want to stand out. We want to be something on our own for who we are. This is so interesting because the way of the kingdom of God is not about building influence. It's about divesting influence. Whenever we are given influence in the world, the goal of the Christian is how do I somehow give this away? <laughs> Again, it's not that being famous is bad, but how do I somehow use this to uplift other people who are in need? Eugene Peterson said, discipleship is a process of paying more and more attention to God's righteousness and less and less attention to our own. Paying more attention to God's righteousness and less to our own. The influence that Jesus has is an authority that comes from laying himself down. Jesus became king through dying. He gave himself up. It's this subversive upside down kind of power. Jesus's authority comes through his sacrifice. 
And this means that it's not like the other powers in our world. The other powers in our world come through trying to amass as much influence as possible, through dominance, through winning. And the temptation here is to take another shortcut from trust, to think, I can have all the influence. I can have all the significance in the world. I can make myself spectacular if I just do this thing. The accuser has some authority over the earth. So it's interesting to hear um, Satan say here that I have all these things. I have all the kingdoms of the world and I can give them to you. You wanna hear that and go, no, Satan, you don't have that stuff. That all belongs to God. But the reason why he's saying that is the accuser has power over the world because people believe his lies. Another word to say that is the liar has power in the world only because people believe his lies. And that's why there's so many people that believe his lies and so there's so much power. But for Jesus, this shortcut would mean maybe I don't have to go to the cross. Maybe I don't have to sacrifice. Maybe I don't have to humble myself. We're often tempted to take shortcuts and to seek influence first. We are tempted to look out for number one, to climb the corporate ladder at all costs, to climb over others on the way to the top. But Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, says to the accuser, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Why? We become like what we worship. Whatever it is that we worship, we begin to look that way. So you guys know those people who they begin to worship money in their life and that's all they do. And it almost gets to the point where whenever they walk into a room, all you see is money. (laughs) That you see like dollar signs in their eyes almost because they've been so formed by that. Or people who are so formed by sex, they're just so obsessed with their own attractiveness that whenever you encounter them, that's all you can see is that that's all they're moved to. It's because we actually become what we worship. The word worship is the old English word worthship, that it's ascribing worth to something. It's ascribing value to something. For Jesus, God is worthy of worship more than influence, way more than influence and splendor in any other kind of way. And Jesus is tempted to get it backwards, but he says, I trust the path that the Father has laid out. Okay, so we talked about bread. We talked about influence. The last temptation is the need for control. Satan leads him to the highest point in Jerusalem. And this one is even more nuanced. Satan says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. So he says, okay, you're the son of God, prove it. Prove that that voice that you heard at your baptism really was the father. It's been 40 days, you're hungry. Maybe you were wrong. Maybe you were delusional about that thing that happened. Maybe you're delusional about your identity. Prove it, prove it to God. Give God an if-then equation. There is this constant temptation to be in control. Sometimes the need for control manifests itself in wanting to control God through formulaic prayer or through right living. So we think, Well, really the key to life is if I just live good enough or if I pray enough or I do enough spiritual disciplines, then God will like me and then he'll give me favor. That's one way of wanting control. Sometimes it's manifested in shortcutting God altogether and just trying to control our environment. We think we know how the world should be and so we can fix it. 
Sometimes we try to prove our own value. See, everybody, look, I'm chosen by God because I can do this. But all of this comes out of our own anxiety, our own lack of security in our identity in Christ. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus says, I don't need to do that. I don't need to do this to prove it to you or to prove it to myself. Jesus here in this temptation is reenacting the story of Israel. So Israel was in captivity in Egypt. They're set free. They immediately enter the wilderness. They wander there for 40 years. They're set free and then desert. Think about that. You've just had this most amazing experience in your entire life. This thing that has um, captured you, that's changed you, that's formed your identity, and then immediately you go into the desert and you can't really see God very clearly. That's what Israel is experiencing. They were tempted when they didn't have enough food, and so they failed that temptation. They were tempted to seek power by another way, by getting a king like all the other nations. They gave in to that, they failed in that way. They were tempted to put God to the test. They failed and they did. Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness is not a coincidence. Just like the 40 years of the Israelites, these 40 days, Jesus shows that he is the true and faithful Israelite. Where they failed, he has been faithful in that he's trust the Father. One way that we could look at this together is we could look at this story and we could go, look at what Jesus did. So follow his example and resist temptation. That's one way we could look at this. But just like Israel, we can't be faithful on our own. We can't. By ourselves and our own willpower and our own white knuckling, we can't be faithful. We will mess up. We will lose trust. We will choose counterfeits. The point of this is that Jesus has done this for us, that he has gone through it for us, that he is faithful when we are unfaithful that the goal is trusting in him and confessing him as Lord and being part of his family. We are part of his story. We are part of his family. So therefore we are free from shame. Our faith is not in our own ability to overcome temptation. Our faith is in his ability to be faithful. The Christian life is not just about avoiding sin. It's about trusting in the God who conquered sin and death. As our collect says today, he is the one who delivers us from temptations. He is mighty to save. My prayer for us this week is that we would be formed. I just noticed that you picked that song because of the collect, way to go, that was nice. <laughs> it's like, we sang those words too. Um, my prayer for us this week is that we would be creatures of worship, avoiding counterfeit worship and flourishing into who he has created us to be by his grace. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for providing a better way for us. Thank you for being close by your grace. Thank you for inviting us into a new family. We've chased after all the other counterfeit worships. We've given our lives to so many other things. And Lord, they only lead to either honor in some respects or shame, which always ultimately is shame. 
Lord, today we choose to trust in this new family and this new story. As we look back on your faithfulness, that you're the one who's delivered us from sin and death. You've been faithful to us time and time again. As we look forward to the day, the hope of resurrection, when all will be right, all will be restored. And today we recognize that even in the desert, maybe especially in the desert, you are moving in our hearts and in our lives. We trust you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.